Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Andrew Doyle. He's Titania McGrath, host of GB News, a comedian and a writer. There are some new Puritans in town. They have their own sacred texts, their own high priests, blasphemy, unspeakable words, rites of passage, heathens and practices of sacrilege. So much so that it seems the behaviour of many social justice activists in 2022 echoes very closely to the behaviour of the Salem witch trials in 1692. Expect to learn why Ben Shapiro is a terrifying man, whether not calling me hot makes you a bigot, why social justice captures smart people just as much as stupid people, why tyrannies are particularly dangerous when they claim to help the oppressed, whether it's accurate to characterise the culture war as left versus right, and much more. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Verso. It is important to get the right exercise, nutrition, and sleep as we age. Many of you may have heard my past interviews with Dr. David Sinclair and other leading scientists studying longevity that sometimes there are certain elements of aging that may benefit from a little help. Their Cellbeing, which is a nicotinamide mononucleotide, or NMN-based supplement paired with naturally derived micronized transresveratrol and TMG, is a bit of a game changer. This is exactly what David Sinclair has been talking about for a long time. NMN is a direct precursor to NAD and shown to boost NAD levels. NAD is essential for life and it is the fuel for the cells of your body. Decline in NAD is associated with age-related diseases. Resveratrol activates and binds to genes, often referred to as longevity genes, called sirtuins, and it increases their affinity for NAD. So NMN and resveratrol are a lethal combo when put together along with TMG. Go to ver.so slash modernwisdom or use the coupon code MW15 at checkout to save 15% on your order. Shipping is international US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, etc, etc. If you've been looking to get into some longevity supplements, this is the place to begin. ver.so slash modernwisdom or the coupon code MW15 at checkout. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. Surfing the internet without Surfshark is kind of like going for a walk in the mud without any shoes on. You can do it, but it's dirty and you probably don't want to. It means that websites can't split test you on prices for products that you're already buying. Your internet service provider can't track where you've been and then sell your information to companies that want to target you with ads. It helps you with phishing websites. It protects your security. But most importantly, it means that you can use all of your streaming services while you are abroad. Or if you're in your home country, you can change your location and get access to every other country's library of content. Also, you can use this across unlimited devices, your laptop, your phone, even your iPad and your TV. So no matter what you are streaming on, you'll get this unlimited library access there. You're already paying for a Netflix membership, so why not pay another £1.59 or $1.80 per month to 10x the access you've got? Head to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom to get an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it and try it for 29 days. And if you do not like it, they will give you your money back. Surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all need help at some point in our lives, whether it's because of stress at home or work or loneliness. It can be invaluable to know that there's someone professionally trained who can help us through whatever we're facing. 
Over 2 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp's online service. It removes all of the hassle and awkwardness that can be involved in finding a therapist and gives you some essential, simplified steps instead. There are a broad range of experts available categorized by their speciality or combination of specialities like addiction, social anxiety, or relationships. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It is professional counseling done securely over the internet. It's available worldwide. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You get timely and thoughtful responses plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't even have to leave the house if you have been thinking about starting therapy this is the easiest quickest most convenient and cheapest way to do it head to betterhelp.com slash modern wisdom that's better h-e-l-p.com slash modern wisdom there is a free quiz on there that can explain exactly what they can do for you and what might be appropriate plus there is 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com slash modern wisdom but now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Doyle. Andrew Doyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As a man who has dedicated his life to thinking about fashion and style. I'm sure that you're familiar with the recent New York Times article redefining what hotness means, saying that hotness is no longer in the eye of the beholder. It's a mood. It's a vibe. A social media movement inspired by the rapper Megan the Stallion strikes back at the gatekeepers of beauty. Do you see this? I am not familiar with this at all, but maybe it's because I don't go out of my way to find fashion articles. Well, that surprises me. So many people, many people are expanding the definition of hotness, taking it beyond its former association with old notions of attractiveness. These days, being hot no longer pertains to only your physical appearance, but includes how you move through the world and how you see yourself. Many of those pushing for a broader understanding of the term are also pushing back against the idea that you need to wait for confirmation from someone else before feeling justified in calling yourself hot. To them, hotness is a self-declaration, and that's that. Hotness is no longer in the eye of the beholder. It's a mood. It's a vibe. Emily Sundberg, 28-year-old editor and filmmaker in Brooklyn, was eating spaghetti when she had a realization. She was hot. There was nothing glamorous about it. It was just a solo weeknight dinner in the kitchen counter, and Ms. Sundberg was wearing workout clothes and glasses, but she felt moved to make a video of herself as she twirled pasta strands on a fork and succeeded, succeeded in getting most of them all the way into her mouth. As she chewed with Kanye West's jail blaring in the background, she stared into the lens with a blank expression. So this is hotness in Zuma generation. What's the sexuality, the sexual orientation, where you're attracted to people because of what, the way they think? Their brain it's something oh. like, like sco- scopiosexual or sco- yeah yes some, sapiosexual some, sapiosexual there we go sapiosexual oh my god um yeah i i wasn't familiar with this article but you know it's I, I guess it's fitting into this this whole movement's obsession with the way that b- beauty is uh is not a thing beauty is a sort of a, a, a patriarchal western construct and um therefore anything can be beautiful but the thing is some things just aren't <laughs> I've right. seen the video of her twirling her noodles or pasta or whatever it is into yeah. her mouth. Uh, I've seen it done better. It's First off, it's not the thing that I think of in the top echelons of hotness, and I've seen yeah. it done better. But you don't have to ask for permission to be hot online, Ms. Sundberg said. There's not one thing that defines what hot is. It's confidence. It's the way you dress. It's the way you present yourself you to other people. 
you don't get to decide whether you're hot. Well, for one thing, it is subjective. Let's be honest. People are attracted to different types. You know, some people are attracted to, you know, skinny people. Some people are attracted to fat people. Some people, you know, that, you know, blondes, brunettes, whatever. It, that's true. Um, but you don't get to decide that you're attractive as a kind of label, right? I can't. I can't Can I not self-identify as hot? Well, I wouldn't have thought so because to whom? <laughs> you know, doesn't it depend? What if someone's, you know, someone who's uh, like, you won't be hot to a lesbian, will you? Well, maybe that's their prejudice showing. Well, if you were the head of Stonewall, that's exactly what you would think. Ah, yeah, you had a run in with them. You're not, Am you're I? Not, well, I mean, just generally, you're always unhappy with them. No, it's not. I'm not. Un, well, no, I am unhappy with them because I think, you know, it's, it's such a shame that an important gay rights group in the UK is now uh, promoting anti-gay ideas. So, yeah, that makes me a bit sad. Um, Nancy Kelly, the CEO of Stonewall, described women, lesbians who want who don't want to have sex with people with penises who identify as women, but are male. She described them as sexual racists. I think that's a problem. She compared them to anti-Semites. Uh, I think we used to call that kind of phrase uh, homophobic, didn't we? So, yeah, I do. And, and my issue with Stonewall, you know, quite apart from all the other things, is that I invite them onto my show constantly all the time. And they just never say yes, because they say we don't have debate. But I want to ask them about their policies. I want to ask them why they changed the, de the definition of homosexual on their website and their promotional materials to same gender attracted, which is not what it means. It means same sex attracted because gay men aren't attracted to people who identify as men. They're attracted to men. It's very and, much uh, about the penis with gay men. In my sort of tangential understanding of what gay men like, it's very much about the penis. Don't pretend that's tangential. You've done some research. <laughs> Clearly, you've done. It's about the penis, and not just the penis plasty. It's about the. Yeah, I mean, well, that's clearly an an element, and the I, the you know, I get that that there's more to uh, same sex attraction than genitals. That's absolutely true, but but you're you can't feign sexual attraction, and you can't relearn uh, your innate sexual orientation, which is what they're kind of implying. What Nancy Kelly is saying in Stonewall is what the homophobes used to say. To gay men you know you're you just haven't found the right girl yet you know you need to open your mind a little bit more you need to you know all of that stuff it's just recycled ancient tropes it's really it's so really are sad they, are they saying you haven't found the right trans man yet uh well they're suggesting that if you if you close off certain demographics from your dating pool then that's the result of bigotry but of course everyone does that everyone does that in one way or another because everyone has uh, a type, uh, someone that they are types of people that they're attracted to. And sure, sometimes there can be people from other categories that surprise you or what, whatever. Sexuality is complicated. But the idea that if you're not attracted to a certain type of person, you need to relearn that and examine your own bigotry and prejudice. It's just, it's just homophobia dressed up as something else, that's all. It's also happening elsewhere, right? So if you can yeah. see how this hotness discussion would slowly encroach onto some sort of bigotry, mm -hmm. men that don't date bigger women would be sizes and right. interestingly you don't see as much about women dating short men there's not really as much criticism for women for doing no. that. if you've got some five foot five guy and he's saying well why is it that women shouldn't date me if i have to date fat girls doesn't seem the, I mean, this idea that you you have a right to be to be attractive to be considered attractive and you have a right to go out with someone like if someone says no isn't that the end of the conversation <laughs> 
No, I don't know. Maybe not anymore. So this Sundberg lady finished up here and she said, that doesn't, need, that doesn't mean that you have to be the most symmetrically, physically perfect human being. I feel like that isn't even as desirable anymore. Our definition of attraction and attractiveness has expanded so much. Well, your publicly stated preferences have, but your revealed preferences, something would tell me, is going to end up with you not sleeping with the homeless guy on the street that doesn't have a job and only has like two yeah. teeth. Yeah, quite exactly. This person's a hypocrite, right? I, I I missed this article. I don't know how I missed it. Did this go viral? I normally get sent this nonsense because when I, I normally because my job now every day, you know, I get up in the morning and I I uh, I search for this stuff, or people send me this stuff because I obviously have to collect material for my show on the Sunday. Um, so I don't normally this miss one stuff. Snuck underneath the radar. Well, I've wow. got. I I went to uh, the Heterodox Academy conference, uh, Jonathan Heights thing out in Denver. Mm. And um, I was sat around the table with a bunch of different people and we were all sharing our favorite resources for where we go for interesting news articles. And uh, I'll send them over to you once we're done. But there's one called Clown World Today that has a Telegram <laughs> chat. They have a Telegram chat where they send out one news story each day. And that is, just if you're short on things to talk about, that will be a, a godsend. Oh, that's great. No, send me that. That's brilliant. Although, look, to be honest, I'm not short of stuff. <laughs> like it is. Yeah, you, you know, said um, before you started the show, you were worried that you were going to run out of stuff to talk about if you had to do a, a regular <laughs> segment on culture wars and you're killing babies on a daily a daily basis. Hilarious, because when I started at GB News, I was appearing every night on the Andrew Neil show in a, a segment called Woke Watch. And uh, well, most nights. Um, and there was concern. Yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to appear every night because there won't be a story every day. There's always a few stories every day. And then certainly for my Sunday show, which I go through everything that's happened in the week. I mean, I always have to leave a lot out. Um, yeah. Well, it's mad. I mean, it's, and it's got it's escalated a lot worse since I saw you last. Sadly. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of that, uh, Ben Shapiro's presence is a terror. Organizers yeah. of a podcast conference in Dallas, Texas, drew backlash Thursday after they took responsibility for harm caused by the Daily Wire podcast host Ben Shapiro's presence at the conference. Podcast Movement, a major annual conference for the podcast industry, issued a profuse apology on Thursday after attendees complained that Shapiro was spotted at the event near the Daily Wire booth. Re remember that Ben Shapiro is one of the two founders of the Daily Wire. Daily Wire sponsored yeah. this year's conference and Shapiro, host of the mass massively successful The Ben Shapiro Show podcast, was seen pictured walking around the expo arena. Did you see the first tweet yeah, that someone responded? As a trans person, as a queer person, as someone with a uterus, this does not make me feel welcome. This does not make me feel safe. One of the conference attendees posted on Twitter after sharing a picture of Shapiro standing by the Daily Wire booth. Does Ben Shapiro make you feel, you know, you know Ben, like quick speaking, little hat, him. Yeah. Does he make you feel unsafe? <laughs> um I, we have to get beyond this unsafe nonsense. We have to stop taking it seriously when anyone says it. It's the go-to thing, isn't it? Ben Shapiro is not a threat to anyone. He just maybe has a different opinion than you. Like, just this is—it's so childish. Um, but it's happening all the time. Th this phrase "unsafe" has been used against me, of course. I've had the same thing. I lost a job because someone claimed that my presence made them unsafe because of a joke I'd told. Uh, this sort of thing happens all the time. Um, when Jerry Sadowitz, the the Scottish comedian. He had his show pulled at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, last week, um, and the, the venue said that his material was making people feel unsafe. So even now, comedy promoters are claiming that words are violence. Uh, it's, I mean, it's something you and I have discussed before. It's something that we've been warning about for a long time. But look, we just need to start laughing in people's faces when they say this stuff. It's absolutely ridiculous. Words are not hurting you. If you're offended, then then that's fair enough. Everyone gets offended from time to time. That's being human. But you are not physically harmed. 
the groveling apology from podcast movement said, Hi folks, we owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the PM22 Expo area near the Daily Wire booth. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. There's no way around it. We agreed to sell the Daily Wire at a first-time booth based on the company's large presence in podcasting. Let's not forget that they've got probably two or three of the top 10 podcasts in the world right. at any one time. Matt Walsh will be up there. Uh, ben Shapiro will be up there. The Morning Wire is unbelievably huge. It's this 15-minute thing that's now making yeah. movies and blah, blah, blah. The weight of that decision is now painfully clear. Shapiro is a co-founder. A drop-in, however unlikely, should have been considered a possibility. Those of you who call this unacceptable are right. In nine wonderful years growing and celebrating this medium, PM has made mistakes. The pain caused by this one will always stick with us. We promise that sponsors will be more carefully considered moving the forward. The pain, the pain. It was a brief visit, right? He said Ben Shapiro briefly visited. If that's all it takes to, 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 you know, reduce you to conniptions, then you really need to see a doctor about that because that is, it's, I, I mean, I don't know what to do about this sort of stuff. I, I, you know, I've been railing against it. Well, you know, I've written a book now about it. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think we need to stop tolerating it. I think we need to laugh it out of existence. I think I think that there is a very real place for ridicule to be used here as one of the most important uh, pushback mechanisms because the game that's being played a lot of the time is this sort of faux intellectual lexical overload semantic game Brazilian jiu-jitsu fuckery that's going on and yeah. trying to engage with it on a serious level kind of legitimates the position that the other side has. Whereas if you see what happened with uh, PC and then with the word woke, how quickly it became... You can't use the word woke unironically anymore. It's not a serious term. And the reason that that happened is because people like yourself and other comedians and online commentators very quickly made it a caricature of itself. And yeah. you can try and mandate something or, um, how do you say, logically reduce it down so that people don't want to be associated with it but if you just make it so uncool and socially toxic to be associated with that no one wants to use it anymore that's it dead in the water yeah well i've tried that i mean i've done a lot of the comedy stuff and the satire stuff and i've written two satirical books mocking this thing my new book is not that my new book is trying to get to grips with it however what i would say in my defense there is i get what you're saying about you know you can't really reason but the, the, the new book I've written isn't aimed at the woke. It is about the woke. And it's therefore an attempt to uh, because most of the people who support who think that they support woke, the woke movement or whatever we want to call them, the critical social justice movement, whatever, they don't really fully grasp what they're about. And so this is a book where we talk through what where I try and explain what it is that their objectives are, how really the culture war is a, a battle over language and who gets to define language. I mean, you've raised it yourself there political correctness woke i've got a whole section of the book about the evolution of the word woke and how it was a form of self-identification for activists at one point and then because people like me started mock using the word to describe them sometimes in a mocking way they then started to pretend that it was a right-wing term that people like me had invented as an insult uh, which isn't true because you know we can check that on google just go back people used to self-identify as woke all the time there are, i've got screenshots of loads of guardian articles talking unironically about being woke so that's not true. So um, but but that's what they do is that because this is a culture war about language, uh, these people who I call the new Puritans in my book, 
continually redefine language and then they will tell you that they haven't done so. So you're using words that you always used to use, but now they're telling you they mean something different. So you used to think the word racism meant prejudice or hate against someone due to the, the color of their skin. And now you're told, no, it doesn't mean that. It means an equation, prejudice plus power, and it's to do with power structures in society and therefore white people, uh, non-white people can't be racist and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you're told, no, the definition's changed now. Even though no one really uses it in this way, you, we're telling you it's it's done this way now. So um, yeah, so I think there are two prongs in, in, in the pushback. And I think one is humor and one is satire. And, and we can keep doing that, but I think you need the other prong as well, because I think you need to persuade the unpersuaded. And there's a whole army of decent liberal minded people who are probably quite humorless. A lot of them, they're not going to respond to the satirical approach. They might even think it's mean. Uh, and particularly because they don't, they, they have fallen for the lexicon. They've fallen for the, the linguistic trick, right? They hear phrases like social justice anti-racism equity and they're like this sounds great i'm opposed to racism i'm for justice and equality that's brilliant so i will support this and if you don't support this then surely you're a nasty reactionary and they've fallen for that basic trick and that's part of the point of course so what i'm trying to do in the book is sort of talk through what these phrases actually mean what the implications actually are and how this movement is against liberalism if i you know i say that i, I make the point that i think the closest synonym to the word woke is anti-liberal. And I think that's what this is. It's an, an explicitly anti-liberal movement. If you read the early critical race theorists like Richard Delgado, he explicitly says we are against liberalism. Liberalism fails us because because prejudice is built into the liberal system. So, uh, you know, it, it's um, yeah, it's about it's about language. That's my that's my take home. Is this a new phenomenon? Because to me, it seems like the semantic fuckery that we've got that's going on is happening yeah. at a quicker pace. Maybe yeah. it's simply that we have a record of it that's kind of uh, kept online for everybody to see at all times. And uh, the Wayback Machine and archive.org and stuff helps you to be able to compare what was and what wouldn't be. Whereas, I guess, 1984 in a world where you can actually get rid of the history of things is a little bit different. Is is this a new phenomenon? Have words been being reinvented to be used to manipulate impressions for a long time? How does all that work? Um, well, I mean, it's all, there have always been people, and particularly ty tyrannies, have always um, redefined words or limited the the words that can be used um, in any given situation. Or they've, uh, you know, I mean, you just have to read 1984 to understand how how that's working. But people have always done this. I mean, phrases such as um, when the CIA CIA started calling torture enhanced interrogation, for instance, uh, that would be an example. They've, they've in um in the Gulag Archipelago, there's an example of this uh, where Solzhenitsyn talks about, and I can't remember what he says. I can check it actually. He says um, he's talking about people who are sentenced, sentenced, and they don't use the phrase sentencing. They use something else. I can't remember what it is. I'll, I'll have to find it for you at some point. Um, but they, you know, tyrants have always done this. They've always played word games to try and create a false reality that you have to subscribe to. I think, though, there's something going on at the moment where what the social justice activists do is maddening because they don't just modify meanings and modify definitions. Often the things that they say are the direct opposite of what they mean. Um, and that is uh, uh, and it leaves you unmoored and confused. And what's an, what's they, an example of that? Sorry. What's an example of that where they say something that's the opposite of what they mean? OK, so they have uh, convinced most people that trans conversion therapy 
is the equivalent to gay conversion therapy. And so you had a lot of Labour MPs standing there with placards saying we want a ban on trans conversion therapy. What trans conversion therapy means is a young person who has feelings of gender dysphoria goes to an expert, a specialist, and the specialist talks to them about it. It doesn't just affirm the gender they think they are. It doesn't just fast track them onto puberty blockers, but says to them, let's investigate this a bit through therapeutic means. Let's discuss maybe it's to do with maybe you're gay and you're, you're, you're struggling with that. Maybe it's autism because there's a high preponderance of autistic people that fall into that category, etc. And trans activists have called that trans conversion therapy. So now labor. But what that means, of course, is you are affirming gender dysphoria among predominantly gay kids and fast tracking them on puberty blockers that will essentially heterosexualize and fix those gay kids. So you actually have, and that is a form of conversion therapy. So when a Labour MP holds a placard saying ban conversion therapy, the placard actually means I support conversion therapy. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is for you. So you, in the new book, you say that we're living through a frenzy of conformity. What yeah. does that mean? What I mean by that is that uh, we are expected to go along with the rubric. Uh, it, that everyone is um, effectively the Overton window is shrinking to such a degree. And if you dare to stray outside of it, if you dare to challenge some of the, the norms of the, or the, the, the ideas of the social justice movement, uh, they'll come after you. They'll continue a pariah, even a slightest point of disagreement. And they will they will devastate your life and they won't hesitate to bully you, trash your reputation, target your employer. What we call cancel culture, uh, in other words. And so people are. Uh, conforming people are taking the the path of least resistance now in the in my book i talk about salem a lot and i draw i draw comparisons between what happened with the witch trials of salem at the end of the 17th century and what we're living through now because what interests me about that is salem it, this was not a typical thing that would happen among the puritan community in new, new england this was they were not witch hunters this wasn't who they were they weren't like the witch hunters of europe who killed burned thousands of people uh this was an aberration. This was this was odd. And it only lasted a year. It started very quickly and then it died off very quickly. And afterwards, everyone said we got that wrong. Everyone repented. You know, they knew it was wrong. They just got caught up in this hysteria. But the reason why it happened is because the elites, the magistrates and the ministers went along with it. Uh, and I think the more I've read about it, I've read a number of books about it. And the more I've read about it, I've realized that that is large that was largely due to self-preservation for reasons of self-preservation. Give us it's give us the I want I want the full understanding of the Salem witch trials and why it came about cuz I've heard it it get bandied about as a, a thing that happens in popular culture but I don't understand what went on. Well, okay, I will tell you what went on and and I talk about it extensively in my book because I think it I think as an analogy it helps us it helps to explain a lot of what we're living through now but also i think it holds the key for how we're going to escape it and that's why i wanted to draw this connection so this was uh 1692 there's a a small community salem village um and there are uh it's a puritan community it's a very god-fearing community uh, very devout uh the reverend samuel paris uh has a, a daughter betty paris and also has a niece Abigail Williams, and they they are young girls and they live with him along with two slaves that he has. Uh, one of the slaves is called Tichaba and she uh, spent some time in Barbados and she has all these sort of voodoo style spells and things which are perfectly harmless. Clearly, she plays these games with the kids and she teaches them these spells and it's, 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 not, they, it's not meant to be taken too seriously. Then Betty Paris 
starts uh, acting in a funny way, uh, is bedridden and has visions and thinks she can fly and all sorts of things like this. And and um, and the local physician thinks she's been possessed by the devil. Then Abigail Williams has a similar reaction and says that she has seen witches in the community. And before long, other girls, friends of theirs, people who are associated with them start saying, I, you know, the, this woman's a witch, that woman's a witch, starting, starting accusing people. Often the targets are quite obvious. People, uh, people like uh, Bridget Bishop, who was the first to be hanged. You know, she was known for being wearing ostentatious, showy clothes, which was unusual in a Puritan community. She ran two taverns where people would get drunk and have, well, not to get drunk, but have fun and carousing, late night carousing, you know. And um, and and so she's an obvious target to accuse. Uh, also, there were rumors that she'd taken a lover out of wedlock. And suddenly all these people start getting accused. But it mounts and it grows. And then when people start being skeptical and saying, look, maybe this isn't real. Maybe the girls are just hysterical. Maybe the girls are just going through a, a silly season. You know, those people get accused as well. And it soon becomes clear that anyone who casts doubt onto the girls' testimonies will themselves be accused and, and hauled into court. And some of the most devout people in the community, Rebecca Nurse was one of the most devout Christian women of that community, an upstanding hugely respected member of the community and she was accused of being a witch as well she goes to court in the courtroom these girls point at the the accused scream that 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 woman is sending her spirit out to pinch them choke them attack them sometimes they see the spirit fly up onto the beam as a as a as a, uh, a yellow bird or they can or you know so they see all this and they describe it and they're screaming and writhing they mimic the actions of the accused. So when Bridget Bishop is standing at the at the uh, on the stand and she rolls her eyes because of what the girls are doing, all of the girls then simultaneously roll their eyes and it gives the impression that they're possessed. And and this is taken as proof uh, that these women are, in fact, witches in con in consort with the devil. They called it spectral evidence. And in my book, I compare that to lived experience because the girls say this is our truth. This is our perception. And we don't need any other evidence than that. And then they start being sentenced to death and hanged. Uh, anyone who was accused who confessed to witchcraft wasn't hanged because the Puritans believed in mercy and they were very lenient if you confessed. So the ones that hanged and in the end, 20 were executed. They would have been the most devout of, 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 of the Puritans, the most the most God fearing, because they're not going to damn their soul by lying in a court of law. Um, so th there's a few reasons I wanted to make the connection with Salem. Firstly, there's the, the sheer hysteria of what happened there. Uh, th this idea of, of, of the human susceptibility for groupthink going along with false narratives because it explains something that's quite difficult to understand. But most importantly, it's the fear that it inspired. It's the fact that um, people conformed. You see, I think the hysteria may have been real among the girls. There's all sorts of theories about why they were experiencing uh, th th these panics. Maybe they thought they were seeing witches. We don't know. Um, but what is for sure is that uh, some of the judges didn't because whenever they accused a local dignitary, someone who meant something. So they accused the governor, they, they accused the uh, colony, colony's governor's wife. The, 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 the governor of the colony was a man called William Phipps. The girls accused his wife and the magistrates in court said, you're wrong. You've made a mistake. Move on. Right. That suggests to me they didn't believe it. Reverend Hale, one of the reverends, they accused his wife. They said this, nothing happened. She wasn't arrested either. Um, all sorts of examples like this. Um, they accused uh, 
man called Reverend Samuel Willard, who was um, at the time the acting president of Harvard. So very powerful man, very God fearing, godly man. And they accused him. And the magistrate said, no, you must be thinking of Constable John Willard, who has the same surname. But he's already you've already accused him and he's in prison. So we can move on now. So there's all these examples where we can tell that the elites didn't really believe it. There was one moment in court where a girl pulled out a small broken off bit of a knife, a little bit of a blade with some blood and said, oh, this woman's just sent her spirit out and stabbed me with this. And a man in the court said, that's from my knife. It broke off yesterday and you saw it and you picked it up. And the court just said, OK, well, we'll ignore that and move on, even though she was just outed as a liar. So why that's important for what we're going through now is there are all these crazy activists online with a- avatar am- anime avatars and they will scream all their nonsense. They see fascists everywhere. Everyone's a fascist, a homophobe, a Nazi, whatever. They see it everywhere and they probably believe it. And they're the equivalent of the girls who are pointing the finger and charging people. But then you have the politicians, the civil servants, the journos, the people who, when you ask them, what is a woman? They go, oh, um, well, you know, it's complicated. And, uh, uh, and you see the fear in their eyes. Um, they know that all of this is bullshit, um, but they're going to go along with it because they think they will preserve themselves by doing so. That's what the elites in Salem did. That's why it went on for as long as it did. It went on for a year, just over a year. Um, So I think those comparisons are really really important because I think the problem isn't the activists. The problem is capitulation to the activists. We we see it again and again. They are so powerful now among all of our major institutions, the civil service, they're in the NHS. The day that Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, the Ministry of Defense on that day put out a tweet talking about how their LGBT plus coffee morning had been such a success. And we got to talk about pansexuality, you know, which seems frivolous, but it's the Ministry of Defense, you know, on the same day, the the Daily Mail reported that MI6 and MI5 were urging their spies to acknowledge their white privilege. Now, it wouldn't matter if it was just activists. It matters because it's the powerful people. Last year in Ontario, a school board, uh, which is in charge of 30 schools, removed 5,000 books from the school libraries because they considered them to be offensive and harmful because they create, contained outdated stereotypes of ethnic groups. They burned a number of the books on a, on a pyre and they used the ashes to fertilize a, a tree, a, a beautiful gesture. And they called this a flame purification ceremony. Now, this is uh, straight out of the Nazi play, but you can't, I mean, you can't, the burning of books, you're thinking of the Oppenplatz. In, in Berlin, you're thinking, you know, that it, you can't evade that. And you certainly calling it something as Orwellian as a flame purification ceremony. That wouldn't matter if it was a bunch of idiot activists burning Harry Potter books, as they sometimes do, and posting it on Instagram, as they sometimes do. This matters because it is a school board, a district, people in authority. And they, although they may not be caught up in the hysteria, they know that they should go along with it for their own good. The... um. Arthur Miller, when he wrote The Crucible, which is his dramatization of the witch trials in Salem, it was written in the early 50s, I think 1952, 1953. Uh, He wrote that because of McCarthyism and he was so stimulated, not mostly, he said, he said this in an interview with The New Yorker. He said that mostly he was he was he was upset about the people in power who were going along with lies for self, you know, for self-preservation. So it's something that happens again and again. And uh, so I've, I've tried in my book to draw this comparison with Salem, because like I say, I think I think it reveals something about what we're experiencing now. Uh, and I also think it reveals how we might escape from it. But maybe we'll talk about that later on. I don't know. I've, I've been blathering on for a while now. 
what is it? I, I I understand the dynamic. I can see the the parallels between the two. Why do the elites, the people who have the power, decide to comply with a group of people that don't have any power? Was it was it important in Salem the fact that the two girls were the niece and the daughter of somebody that wasn't super low prestige? For instance, had it have been the lowest of the low, would they have been given the same degree of uh, room to speak? Possibly. We don't know that. I mean, possibly it was considered particularly horrifying that this was happening in a, in a reverend's house, in, in the clergyman's house. But uh, the girls were relatively powerless. But this was the thing is that that and the girls suddenly became powerful through victimhood. All of a sudden, and this is another major parallel, I think, all of a sudden, these girls had found a way to be the most powerful people in the community. They, they could sentence you to death. They could have you killed. And and they were, but they were also able to put, say they were on the side of the angels, right? Well, who does that remind you of? You know, the, the incredible power that the social justice ideologues have, uh, the power to destroy someone's life and career, if they just choose to do so, if they deliberately misinterpret or misrepresent what someone says. Uh, and they can do it by saying that they're the good guys. They're the virtuous. Hashtag love wins, guys. You know, that's that's them. So I um, whether it would have happened if it were different girls, whether it would have started, there were a lot of sort of specific reasons why it, it happened early on, why it started the way it did. But once it had exploded, they could have been anyone, really. But, you know, there the, the downside to that, of course, is and the other the other parallel is they the girls were powerful, but no one wanted to be around them. They were also people were scared of them. And after all this ended, they a lot of them had very great difficulty in maintaining any kind of relationships of any kind, marriages or friendships. Uh, so and you notice that with the extreme social justice activists, if you're in that group, you're safe. These aren't people you would want to be friends with. They turn on each other so viciously sometimes as well. They're scary people. And when all of this ends, I, I can't imagine uh, this working out well for them particularly. But it's that it's that dynamic of people using victimhood as a means to bludgeon others. And I think that's where the, the, the parallel is absolutely clear. If you start to use weakness or victimhood as, a, as something to be upheld, as something to be pe- pedestalized, that seems like a very dangerous position to get yourself into because there is no limit. There is a limit to how competent you can be. Your competence is limited by your competence, right? But your ability to pretend that you are a victim is basically limitless. The the, the right. hole continues to go down as much as you want. Well, particularly if it's just based on lived experience. Well, precisely. What you, fe- what you feel. I mean, I could say that anything has traumatized me and therefore that's my lived experience and therefore I can decide that... The, the, the innocuous thing that you said to me the other day yep. was a homophobic hate crime. I've decided it was homophobic. And that, by the way, is is, is current police practice. So you know, a, the... a, a precise part of this, or a, a really important part of this, is the spectral evidence thing. Yeah. It's the fact that interpretation and uh, a low barrier for what constitutes verifiable, usable evidence that facilitates all of this because without without that you actually end up crashing up against rigor and scrutiny yes and reality you know exactly right and that's going to be the way out at the moment we have a police force 
that records hate crime on the basis of the perception of the victim alone. In other words, if someone decides that what someone something that someone else did was homophobic, it's recorded as a hate crime, even if that person didn't mean it that way. It doesn't matter. It's the lived experience alone. The police say it explicitly on the College of Policing website, perception of the victim. By the way, they call them the victim rather than complainant, because, of course, it's about lived experience. So we don't need a, a trial. We can bypass due process. Um, similarly, with spectral evidence, same thing. But the great thing about Salem uh, and what eventually happened is uh, the deputy governor wrote to and he should have done this straight away. I don't know why he didn't. He wrote to the leading clergyman in the country and said, oh, by the way, is spectral evidence admissible in court? And they all replied and said, no, by no means. It's not it's not admissible. It's not you can't use it to prosecute. And all of the cases collapsed. So all those dead people, they, they were they were prosecuted for nothing. And and that was it. Done. Overnight. Done. And if the police and the authority figures of today and the Guardian and all the others that uphold this nonsense, if they were to say, look, you've come to me with your lived experience, but your lived experience is not evidence of anything beyond your own experience. And it cannot be extrapolated to be used as such. I can't say based on my own experience of being gay, the times that I've been, uh, you know, homophobically abused or whatever. And I can't then say, oh, well, that means we live in a deeply homophobic country. No, it means I've experienced homophobia a few times. It's, it's like, so that my lived experience isn't invalid, it, you know, and, and I'm not it's not to suggest that you can't learn from other people's personal experiences. I'm not saying any of that, but it can't be used as the basis to formulate national policy. Uh, and so that's where I think the fact that Salem fell apart because of the spectral evidence was deemed inadmissible. What if we all just decided tomorrow lived experience? We can't we can't do anything with that. We can't draw anything from that. Then this stuff ends, doesn't it? Do you believe on balance that if you were to get rid of lived experience, that it would be a net positive? There will be some people out there for whom the law or the way that uh, pains and issues are recognised doesn't fit within existing paradigms of justifiable things. And they, you know, there will be some people out there who do have a lived experience that doesn't have a, pre a precedent for them. And they go, well, look, like I'm now no longer protected. People are no longer standing up for me. Isn't that a bad thing? Well, like I say, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't listen to people's experiences and we shouldn't take them seriously. Uh, you know, what I'm suggesting is that they shouldn't be used to damn and condemn others because it's insufficient. I, I think that's a I think that's a fairly fair uh, way of looking at it. I think, you know, anecdotal evidence we all all know is can be useful and illuminating, but it can't be anything that we base broad conclusions on. And I think that's uh, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. personally. One of the other elements here is that it seems like the Salem witch trials were uh, based around a legislative process, right? This was happening yeah. in court and everything hinged around the, the lived experience stuff. What you have now, it seems to me that the situation in the modern world is a little bit more complex because a lot of the enforcement isn't necessarily coming from the powers that be. A lot of this enforcement yeah. is coming along the sides and it's you know, bottom up, right? It's emergent, not uh, dictated. How, do you, well, how are you going to deal with that? Well, it's a bit of both, though, isn't it? Because those at the top are, as I say, capitulating to these pressures from below and laws are changing and, and things are, you know, the, we, be, because it's capturing so many institutions, it's captured a number of we've had a number of um, near miscarriages of justice as a result of this, because this stuff has seeped into the legal system as well. 
thankfully, it would appear at the moment that the high courts are not captured. So what tends to happen is you'll get a terrible decision in the court and it will be reversed on appeal by the higher courts. Uh, so th- this is uh, one of the ways in which people like Mara Fostata uh, eventually won her case. What was that? Her- Maya Fostata was a tax expert, is a tax expert, sorry, who who was uh, dismissed from her job because she uh, she. Um, how can I say? Well, she acknowledged the biological reality of sex differences uh, because she has gender critical views. Um, and as a result of that, she was um, she lost her job or her contract wasn't renewed. And she took them to tribunal because she said, well, look, this is just because of my personal beliefs. Uh, they made up all sorts of lies. They claimed she'd misgendered someone at work or harassed someone. And none of that was true. And that's all now on record. But so she took them to the tribunal, but the tri- it found in the employer's favor, the tribunal found in the employer's favor and said that her opinions about biological sex differences were not worthy of respect in a civilized society. And I can't remember the exact phrase. It's a legal phrase, but it's, it's, it's something of that kind. So then she had to appeal. And on the appeal, it was and it was a it's a great thing that Maya Fostata won that appeal, because what that means is there is now a precedent in law. It is now established in law that to believe that there are two sexes and that sex is immutable. That is now a protected belief by law. So now, whenever any feminist gets fired for making that statement, uh, the employer has broken the law and it will be reversed. So what I'm saying is we, we can still rely on the courts to resolve a lot of this at the moment. But what if we don't stem this momentum and when the high courts get captured, then we're screwed because then you're in a situation like, you know, some of these medical journals that are now completely ideologically captured where you get a major medical journal, massively reputable uh, magazine talking about how sex is a, a spectrum. And, you know, and they know it's not. And I know it's not. And I barely scrape my biology GCSE and I know it's not. Um, but you've got the, the top minds in the world in this field saying something that even I know is not true. So and that's really scary. So yeah, then you get that legitimation crisis where figures in authority can no longer be trusted. At the moment, we can't fully trust the police. We can't fully trust the uh, the the journalists. We can't fully trust politicians. But the high courts seem to be pretty sound at the moment. Social media platforms as well, I suppose, are a huge yeah. contributor here. What about um, – I, I read a, a post from Andrew Sullivan a little while ago, earlier on this year, where he thinks that we've passed peak woke. <laughs> he said he said that peak woke was June, July, twenty twenty, and I I don't really know. I don't understand the burblings, but I'm going to try and bring him on to have a discussion about this. But I, I don't really understand the burblings below the surface. But it definitely does seem to me at least a little bit like the very extreme held social justicey sort of views are kind of becoming a meme of themselves now. But, but I don't I know if that's that, just my that, echo chamber. Well, I thought that before. I, I thought they were always a bit ridiculous. Um, uh, and I thought that we would just, you know, laugh them off because so many of them are really stupid. You know, when you get, I don't know, like like the, the, the William Hogarth exhibition in London recently where the curators had put up all these really weird notices next to all the pictures, problematizing them and talking about slavery and things that weren't necessarily relevant to the the pictures and so there was one even there was a, a self-portrait of William Hogarth sitting on a chair and the note said the chair's made of wood and that wood probably came from some plantation <laughs> so you know maybe we should it was really really weird so that stuff's quite funny or when like when they put trigger warnings on major works of literature in, in universities like um 
the old man and the sea the hemingway book which had a trigger warning that said warned about that this book contains scenes of graphic fishing you know <laughs> and so stuff like that is, <laughs> is funny and and but it's still being that was applied by a major university by academics in a major university we're not talking about these mad pink-haired activists we're talking about people and figures of authority i would like to think i i mean andrew sullivan i'm a big admirer of and i hope i hope he's right prescient yeah that would be nice if I he was the cassandra right. yeah i don't know man. I, I mean part of me thinks i can't work out whether it's an intellectual ghetto to throw these people into higher academia where they basically get at least they're not looking after sending rockets to mars and stuff but then when you tell me that on the day that russia invades ukraine that mi6 is concerned about their equity coffee morning or whatever it was that they did yeah that, that makes me feel like maybe maybe this has started to creep into other so maybe we're not past peak woke maybe it is continuing well, to uh, ascend well, the thing is you know all of this started obviously in the humanities uh um uh, but now it is actually seeping into the sciences. So, you know, when we say it's the problem is the next step of this is going to be, I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I, I think the next step of this is going to be how do we now rid the sciences? Of? We already had people like uh, what's her name? Uh, Professor Gutierrez talking about how mathematics itself operates as whiteness. And, and, and we've had academics problematizing the notion that two plus two equals four which almost feels like they're trolling us, like they've picked up 1984 and they're going to troll us with that, but they, they mean it. Um, but there's a really good example, which I mentioned in the book, which is in New Zealand, where um, the government in New Zealand has tried to incorporate Maori origin stories into the science curricula of, of schools because they these are alternative ways of knowing. And this is a belief system that thinks that the, that the human race was created by the god of the forest and that raindrops are the tears of another goddess and that is now being taught next to you know osmosis and peristalsis and whatever whatever like whatever photosynthesis like oh and by the way when it rains that's a goddess crying maybe <laughs> maybe because it's alternative ways of, no, of and and what was worse about that is that a professor of the royal society of new zealand actually uh signed a letter was one of these people that signed a letter saying you know whilst it's great to respect indigenous cultures and you know really really placating that and not being at all uh, belligerent they just said look it's not science is about the discovery of empirical truths and so therefore we it's not appropriate to bring these kind of belief systems in uh, and then he got absolutely nailed and attacked and all of the signatories of that letter were denounced by the vice chancellor of the university by um the royal society uh by all of these major figures um and then and they've been told that they were told they'd caused hurt and harm and that was the thing uh so if scientists are being attacked and punished for defending science if leading science journals and magazines are you know publishing things that they know not to be true because it satisfies an, an ideological uh perspective uh then that's actually going to have a, a major knock-on effect because it's not like it's all very well in an English department. If I if I think that Shakespeare's sonnets are a problematic, um, you know, heteropatriarchal cis-normative text uh, that we'd be better off without, well, who cares, right? Because it's it's the sonnets, and uh, you know that's you know I wouldn't want to live without the sonnets, but we could. 
but could we live without medicine <laughs> could we sanitation um i think when it comes to the sciences things either work or they don't you know i i, I just i think that might be the next battleground that maybe some people aren't quite seeing we're seeing it creeping in wasn't there a tweet today actually uh where someone uh, i think uh, it was the scientific american is that right is that magazine yeah the, the, scientific yeah, america they, i think they, tw they tweeted out a thing about the myth of binary sex the myth, like that this really unscientific thing that human beings before the 18th century thought understood human sex as being there's only one sex now we believe there's two sexes but actually it's all wrong there's many 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 multiple sexes which there aren't and no no expert believes that i saw i saw in the economist the other day gay people are reclaiming an islamic heritage in the old days muslims were quite tolerant of homosexuality history is complicated and prejudice has ancient roots nonetheless activists can point to periods of the islamic past where arab rulers were more liberal about sex they relate to how caliph amin in the ninth century baghdad had a male lover and feted gay poets that's that's true I mean, wow. there, there were there were moments in Islamic history when homosexuality was more tolerated. That that's not a lie. Um, but, but to suggest that gay Muslims don't have it hard these days, <laughs> which I imagine is the implication there, right? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. fuck me. That like, that's not helpful to gay Muslim people, right? That kind of <laughs> that you can reclaim it. I mean, I, anyone yeah. that decides to reclaim their gay Muslim heritage in modern day baghdad i fear would yeah. if they if they took the advice of the economist would be coming up again but I, I think that shows as well just how narrowly bound these discussions are like it is yeah. very much for all the talk of the bourgeois white cis heteronormative people sat in their ivory tower talking like it th that's you those are the people that are proselytizing about this this is literally like how blinkered yeah. can your worldview be for you to not realize that there is genuine harm out there. And this is, you know, it, yeah, yeah. It, it does feel a little bit like banging my head against a wall talking about this stuff because you're like, look, there are genuine problems that are occurring. Many of them are occurring to people that are in minorities or groups that are genuinely oppressed. And the more that you take up people's reserve tank of fucks to be spent yeah. on something which does not justify spending it on, yeah, that yeah. means that they do not. It's the boy that cried wolf all over again. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What was that quote from? Uh, I quoted it in another book I wrote um, from Muslim Girl magazine. I think we was talking about the Prophet Muhammad was an intersectional feminist. <laughs> this, is, this was an, an actual. I didn't make that up. Um, you know, you have to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes back to this point. We have to acknowledge reality as it is and we have to stop i mean this intersectional stuff because we end up pitting the most reactionary elements within islam at the very top of this pile it's so weird to me well i thought would... uh, did you see me and douglas spoke about this did you see that uh white gay privilege is now a thing oh yeah of course yeah yeah i mean i know the, the, the gays are not oppressed anymore yeah you are basically straight now because of your yeah. skin color you're yeah. a, a honorary straight again basically yeah basically. Uh, so uh Helen Lewis just released a BBC Four podcast called The Church of Social Justice. What's your okay. view on whether or not social critical social justice is a religion? Because people often sort of well, bandy that, this about. Is that true? Well, that's my whole book, isn't it? <laughs> well, but like, how, just how similar do you do you draw the the parallels in terms of religion? You know, like the the um, sacred texts, the idols. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, I mean, there's like. 
look, it's it's a way that you can understand it if you if you perceive it as a religion, because look, it's a, it's a it's a belief system, albeit of a secular kind, which which is largely faith based. So they believe in these invisible power structures. Uh, they believed in lived experience. They believed in all this stuff that you have to just take on trust. And the people who are, are uniquely qualified to detect these power structures are those who have studied whiteness studies or what, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so there's a, that element to it, but also it, it it bears all the hallmarks of of fundamentalist religion insofar as it uh, will not tolerate any dissent. It attacks heretics. It roots them out. It uh, it excommunicates anyone who strays from it. It has its own litur- liturgical cant, doesn't it? Phrases that you are expected to repeat, like trans women are women, trans men are men, etc. Uh, it has its own esoteric language, religious pseudo religious language uh it it has its own gods uh judith butler kimberly crenshaw michelle foucault its own saints at least uh it has its foundational holy texts uh it has all sorts of things in common uh with religion um so yeah i think it's a really helpful way to understand it but also the main thing i think is that as stephen weinberg the the, uh physicist said uh you know, without religion, you have good people doing good things and bad people doing bad things for good people to do bad things. That takes religion. And it makes sense of things for us because the inquisitors who who uh, burn people at the stake, strap people to the rack, thought they were doing God's work, thought they were the good guys. The uh, social justice activists who have this incredible, unmitigated rage and ferocity, who will happily destroy your life. They will end you. They are merciless and 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 brutal but they think they're doing good and and that i think is the that's why it makes sense to think of it as a religion that's that's why it 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 helps us to comprehend why look a lot of the people in this movement will be bullies and will be the sadists it attracts people of that kind because they get to do what they want to do and look like the good guys and they get away with it but most of them will be really decent people who think that they are upholding social justice and that, who will think that they are combating racism, combating fascists. They probably believe that fascists are everywhere, even though all the studies tell us that they're not. So that's why I think the comparison with religion is important to understand, because I don't want to just dismiss these people as all. You know, if you just judge them on their actions, you think, God, these people are psychotic. They have no human empathy, just none. But it can't be that, can it? Because I, I have a fundamental belief in humanity. And I think some people, some people are sociopaths. Some people have no empathy. And some of them will be part of the social justice movement, sure. But I think most of them are pretty good people who just, they've just got it very wrong. Yeah, so there has to be uh, an explaining principle. If you have a faith in human nature, you've got a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Seems like that relates to what you were just talking about. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because I think as he goes on to say, because you've got the, your own conscience is on your, is on your side, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. The, the, it's, it's worse. It's more brutal because, because they think, well, it's partly because they think any dissenters are, you know, anyone who disagrees with them has the slightest point of political disagreement is not just wrong or naive or ill-informed but evil yeah heretical. and so they yeah and so therefore they monster you and you know the, you know i get a lot of people objecting to the things i believe 
99% of them don't ever faithfully reflect what I believe. It's always things they've assumed I believe. It's always things that the monster version of me that they've created believes. Um, There is a parallel universe with a monster Andrew Doyle who is a fascist, evil, wants all gay people to die, etc. All the stuff I'm accused of believing. But I don't believe any of that. And not, not only that, it's on record. Everything I think is really, really out there. So a little basic research would disabuse them of their of their uh, views uh jk rowling is another example the idea that the idea that jk rowling someone who is so sort of left-wing and empathetic and gives so much of her money away to good causes uh is now routinely smeared as far right fascist evil witch uh you know even in the mainstream commentary she's called hateful and transphobic and she's never ever said anything publicly that is hateful or transphobic so you're you're dealing with a complete fantasy world and and that's why i wanted to write the book i want to try and make sense of how have we reached this point where people like me who just uphold liberal values and free speech and equality and are opposed to racism and discrimination even that if someone like me can be monstered as far right and nazi that's why i opened my book with the the, uh, the story of my friend who started screaming at me that i'm a nazi because I can't make sense of that. Well, what is that world? What that's a world in which reason uh, and and logic and rationality is just it's gone. It can't that it's it's not there. It's a fantasy world now. And I think we need to get back to reality. Let's ditch. Let's jettison this fantasy perspective. Most disputes that I see online or even in the mainstream media are f- uh, figments of of someone's imagination. They are two people arguing against specters that they've conjured and they're not really listening and they're not really talking about the issues. And I think it's really sad, actually. You mentioned there about JK Rowling being accused of being far right. And I'm sure yeah. that you get, you get the same accusations as well. Is it even correct? Do you think to characterize the culture war as left versus right at the moment? hundred percent wrong. I mean, it's, um, one of the reasons it's wrong, I mean, if you take the UK, uh, the Labour Party, which is the traditionally left wing party, although not very left wing now, uh, is completely um, immersed in this ideological movement and, and buys into a lot of it. The Tory party, however, the, the Conservatives have presided over most of the problems over the past 12 years. They've let it through. They've let it happen. They are also woke. They have a the new online safety bill, which uses all of the language of social justice about how words can cause harm. Uh, they are part of the problem. Their proposals to revise the Gender Recognition Act, same thing, they believe in gender identity ideology, or at least they will pay lip service to it. Um, we're starting to see pushback now with because they, they can see how it hasn't gone down well with the voters. So now you see that the two people who are running for the Tory leadership both coming out and saying no. Uh, uh, there's a difference between men and women, right? They're 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 re- they're realizing what's happening now. But this is not a right-left issue. And even if it were, you can vote in a Tory government, a Labour government. You can't vote out the civil service. You can't vote out the Quangos. All of which are completely captured by this ideology. Uh, whoever is in government, you will have woke policies running the police, running the NHS, and it's really serious. You know, when when uh, the NHS have a policy called Annex B which means that uh, they house people on the basis they accommodate people. They have single sex wards, right? But people are accommodated according to their own gender identity, not according to biological sex. And what that means is if I were to say I'm a woman, they would have to put me on a ward with women. And if one of the female patients complained about my presence, the official written policy of the NHS 
is that staff, nurses and doctors would have to say, no, you are mistaken. There are no men on this ward. In other words, it is written into official NHS policy that they have to gaslight their patients should they raise an objection to this. When there was a sexual assault, there was a rape on a ward. And when the police turned up and said there's been a rape on this ward or if there's been an allegation of a rape, the staff at the hospital said that cannot have happened because there are no men on this ward knowing full well there was someone with male genitalia on that ward. Now, so the, the, it, it matters, that sort of stuff, obviously, because there's a rape victim all of a sudden who isn't going to get justice because of some people have decided that this is progressive somehow. There was a um, story that I saw that came up yesterday. Trans prisoner convicted of, uh, who was convicted of manslaughter impregnated two inmates and then attempted to remove his testicles with a razor. A New Jersey inmate landed himself in hospital after he tried to remove his testicles with a razor. Demi Minor, who identifies as transgender, engaged in self-harm after he was transferred to a men's prison because he had been impregnated two inmates while in woman's facility. According to his blog, Justice for Demi, Minor felt hopeless because prison officials doubted that he is transgender. I showed my medical records showing that I've been on hormones for years and awaiting gender-affirming surgery, which they are delaying. Started cutting again with a razor. I began making an incision to remove my testicle. In my head, I just wanted the pain to stop. I just wanted to, to get out of this. They don't know what the hell I'm going through. More than a decade ago, Minor unleashed his uh, hell of his own. Back in 2011, he tried to rob his former foster parents. Approximately nine months after he left their charge, and then he stabbed someone to death who was 69 years old. However, one of the, at least one one of the two women that he impregnated is keeping the baby. So um, that baby is going to have two parents soon. I mean, that's obviously someone who is very disturbed and that's obviously someone who needs help. Right. But it's also a rapist who shouldn't be in a woman's facility. Right. Clearly. And that, and that, uh, so w w w female prisoners are some of the most vulnerable people. I mean, they may have committed crime, but a lot of them have, I've read some statistic about the, the number of them that have had blunt force, head trauma because so many of them have been victims of domestic abuse and it's it's very high there's a lot of a lot of troubled people there you don't want to put an intact male who is pro who has been convicted of sexual assault what a, that's insane i mean th i think uh, the reason why that was that's still happening is because i think people don't believe that's happening i, th I don't think people believe it sounds that, so ludicrous right it sounds too imp impossible but, but everyone's complicit. The media is complicit. There was an article on the BBC recently about a man in, I think it was in New York. And it, sa it said, um, so this elderly woman, 70s, late 70s, something like that, this elderly woman cut up two of her elderly female friends and put them, their heads into bags. And she'd already killed a few of her. And, you, and you're reading this and you're thinking, doesn't sound like an elderly woman. And you get to the bottom of the article and it's almost like an aside of this person uh, ident uh, transitioned recently. It's like, that's, it's a man. It's a male serial killer. And, th and that's not journalism. If you're, if you're lying to us for most of the article. And then a footnote. I, and then a basic footnote. So, I mean, it's, if you just skinned the article, you'd think that, oh, wow, that's weird. You know, there's suddenly elderly female serial killers. Um, I, I mean, but this is why we've got to push back on it. We, we've got to restore the primacy of truth. Truth really does matter. And it has, the stakes are high when people are getting raped and attacked that's that's really serious um anyway sorry we've gone very serious now but it is serious <laughs> stuff isn't it it is it is serious it, stuff man yeah i mean this is the thing i part of me wants the uh, a part of me thinks that the the best way to push back against this is to it's it's almost like a real life ad hominem or sorry no it's not it's like a real life uh, reductio ad absurdum 
right? It's like, mm. look, this is the most insane story that you could think of, and it actually happens to have happened. The white gay privilege thing is a, a, a real-world demonstration of what happens when you have intersectionality, right? When you have a hierarchy of grievance, you end up having people that are no longer... Like, this was something that was... It was almost prophetic, some of the stuff that was being talked about four or five years ago. If you have intersectionality, it means that people are going to start to climb this ladder and there's one person on the planet and they're the most oppressed and that means that they can talk down to everybody else and blah, blah, blah. So part of me thinks constantly bringing up these stories is an important part of highlighting, look, this is actually happening. This is something that everybody needs to be conscious of. Then the other part thinks, well, does it give malign actors... Uh, an attention does it co-opt certain people into the into this movement do you, do you understand what i mean like part of it needs to be the warning and part of it needs to be the oh shit well what if this what if this makes the problem worse well i think the implications of intersectionality have i mean i think the original idea behind it made sense i mean i don't know do you know about where it came from and yeah 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 so that made sense to me you know kimberly crenshaw was talking about a specific case where black women were falling through the cracks because they were facing oppression for being both black and female. There are, there's a legitimate point there. Um, but it's become a kind of a religious dogma based on the idea of, of, of hierarchies of privilege and, and it reduces people to their demographic. And it says that you are more oppressed if you have these qualities and less oppressed if you have those qualities. And it fails completely to take into account any kind of individual circumstances or who, who people are, and it often forgets about class and money, of course, as well. That's the other thing. So it is a it is a flawed way, and it has real life effects as well. It has very deleterious effects when, for instance, people talk about white privilege and the discourse of white privilege. Well, there's now uh, reason to believe, and 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 people have uh, confirmed that it has muddled policy thinking when it comes to white working class kids who are, you know, among the lowest uh, educationally in the country at the moment. Uh, it it actually has an effect on people. So it's a it hasn't worked. It's a bad idea. Uh, and I think we should move on from it. What was that racism of the gaps thing that you were talking about? Oh, well, uh, it's the it's the um, the baseline of critical race theory, which is uh, this this notion that all equality inequalities of outcome are evidence of racist practice. So in other words, uh, if you can't explain why there are different different outcomes, you just say, well, that must be racism in the way that if you can't explain something that it's the God of the gaps phenomenon, it's the equivalent of that. If you can't it's, it's explain something in nature, then it's God. You, you, God fills that hole. Similarly with this, racism fills that hole. But of course, the charge of racism is really serious and, and you have to be able to uh, uh, prove it. Well, it's kind of becoming less serious now because of its proliferation, because of how many people are being accused of being a racist. It, I know that's a real that's a real worry, isn't it? The fact that when I'm online and I hear someone called a racist, I just assume that's probably not true. Yeah. It's, it's probably, you know, J.K. Rowling is called a racist sometimes, called a Nazi. Sometimes. You just think the word does, you know, when when it's used that promiscuously, then, then yeah, it, it becomes denuded of all meaning. So, uh, th- and it should never be the case, should it, that my default assumption is that that word doesn't, isn't, has been inaccurately applied. That's it, terrible. It definitely doesn't help the movement it definitely doesn't help it doesn't help us to communicate like it's it's just a very messy way to communicate so i had this guy on the show a guy called gwinda bogle 
And uh, he has this concept where he says, when intelligent people affiliate themselves to ideology, their intellect ceases to guard them against wishful thinking and instead begins to fortify it, causing them to inadvertently mastermind their own delusion and to very cleverly become stupid. And this is, I think, what... I mean, it's fucking brilliant. But it's what... I had a question for you, which is why is it that this seems to be disproportionately held? These viewpoints seem to disproportionately be held by intelligent people. Why is it that their rationality hasn't been able to guard them against something which seems to be playing around up against reality? It's swimming upstream. Such an important question. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, You're absolutely right, though. It does seem to be that intelligent people are particularly susceptible to this. I mean, the fact that academics are now mostly activists right, and the fact that they, 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 they bought into this stuff. Uh, yeah, intelligence is no prophylactic against this uh, this belief system. You know, there have always been intelligent ideologues of all of all stripes. Um, so why is that the case? I guess because however intelligent we are, ideologies will be appealing to us because thinking is hard, even if you are really smart. Perhaps, possibly, especially if you are really smart. And you know, maybe an ideology solves everything for you. It says, you know, this is this is the way the world works. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to do your thinking for yourself anymore. And I, I, I think that's as true as in, of intellectuals as anything else. It's less about how intelligent you are and more about how your capacity for critical thinking. And I don't I think everyone is capable of critical thought. Um, I wonder whether I wonder whether people like the idea of a predetermined framework of thinking. If yeah. you are the type of person that has vacillations about your view of the world more than the average person because it actually it nets you a bigger positive if you're not somebody that is hugely inquisitive or curious or introspective and and doesn't hold all of these different viewpoints in your mind at one time there is less of a benefit to outsourcing your thinking to somebody else because there isn't as much thinking going on in any case i wonder whether it's almost like a relief to people that have a lot of big questions and can't find answers to them to just go for something that is kind it's just an answer i don't care if it's the right answer it just is a answer well i think i think the social justice activists depend upon that don't they because they are offering answers to complicated difficult ideas and they're offering very simple appealing soundbite style answers to these things uh and they and they they've already sort of problematized things because they keep redefining words and they keep telling you you don't understand this. And they keep throwing jargon at people and saying, you, you won't understand it because you haven't studied critical race theory. So just let us do the thinking for you. We'll come in and we'll tell you what's problematic and what's not and what you should say and what you shouldn't say. Going uh, back to what you said about religion, I learned, is it, was it Thomas Blackwell? Was he the first guy to translate the Bible into English? And before that time, well, uh, who was the first? No, no. Who it's not, was it's, the first? Oh, I shouldn't have had that glass of wine. I know it's William Tyndall. It's William Tyndall. Well, if this, if Google tells me, oh, this, it's debated. The first person to complete the English language version of the Bible dates from 1382 and was credited to John Wycliffe. Okay. Tyndale's Bible is credited with being the first Bible in the English language to work directly from Hebrew and Greek. Yeah, maybe it's Tyndale okay. Bible is is on uh, Wikipedia, and we know how accurate that is. So we'll 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 give you that. But my <laughs> my point being that previous to that, the only way that the regular person would have access to the sacred text were through, vicariously through the priests, right? right. It was like, look, you pure plebeians, you come to me, I will tell you what God says. Not only am I the person that can 
convene with the divine yeah. and that is proselytizing about it. But I'm actually the only person that fully understands, literally fully understands, because you actually can't read the language, which would have been Latin, I'm going to guess at the time. You can't read what this is. Oh, that's why they that's why they resisted translating the Bible into the, into the vernacular. Absolutely. Because it allows people to see the scriptures for themselves and, and begin to interpret for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's really similar to what's going on now. I mean, look at the way that some of these ideologues write. Look at the way that Judith Butler writes with this terrible, turgid, garrulous prose that is almost it looks like it's engineered to 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 uh, to confuse people. It, you know, these ideas that she's expressing should be able to be expressed with elegance and clarity. And if you can't do so, uh, then you're failing. And I get that sometimes difficult concepts require difficult language. I'm not di dismissing that. But try reading her stuff. It's it's you know, it's not it's bad writing is what it is. So I think but it's but it, there's a there's a point to it. If you can if you throw all this jargon down, people do get intimidated. Look at the, look at whenever acad these academic activists get in, like people like um, oh, I won't name names. Actually, what's the point? Um, when when they start getting into rows on Twitter and they start throwing down. Firstly, they sometimes throw down their qualifications. They're like, I've got a PhD in this, or whatever, and they do all that. As a, any sentence that begins with yeah, as a. As an expert. in the, you know, And then they throw down this jargon, and they, they are counting on that deterring people. The reason why in my book I go through critical race theory and what are the, the key tenets of critical race theory in a clear way is because I don't think it's very complicated. And I think anyone can understand it. And I think, but they, they are counting on people not understanding it. And they gaslight all the time. They say... They say things like, oh, yeah, you're talking about critical race theory. That's totally about law. It's a legal discipline. Yeah, that was its origins. It originated from legal scholars um, like Derek Bell and, 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 uh, and, and Delgado. And it starts with it starts with law and then it gets rolled out into education and all areas of public life. And, and so when you talk about critical race theory in schools and you often get I see it all the time online, people say, you're talking about critical race theory in education. It's not in education. It's a legal thing. And you're like, there are literally, there are hundreds of articles about critical race theory in education. There are books called critical race theory in education. So it's, it's just, they, they just don't want, like you say, the plebeians to, to have a seat at the table. But it's kind part. of, it's kind of a little bit like saying that hammer that I just hit you over the head with, that's not a weapon. That's yeah. a DIY device. Right. Exactly. It's it's really paternalistic, isn't it? It it is so elitist. That's what that's what really winds me up. Very wanky, very yeah. very wanky. Well, it's establishment as well. Like so, it's 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 basically, it's the elite. I mean, I consider the woke to be like the the clergy of our age, basically, and they are the elite. The elite. They are the high priests. They were saying, you don't understand, and you can never understand. So just trust me, you know. And I, anyway, I finished. <laughs> I don't know what more to say about that. I'm starting to get slightly grumpy about it, so I'll I'll, I'll uh, enjoy the rest know. of your wine. That's what you need to do. A bit more wine, more wine or less wine. I don't know which I one think it it's, is. I think it's because I've had a long day, and normally I'm very calm and sort of measured when I talk about this stuff. But I, I've had a long day and half a glass of wine. I'm like, I'm just sick of it. Like, the, do you the, find yourself? Here's a, here's a, here's an interesting question. Do you find yourself able to emotionally detach from the fact that you are now swimming? permanently in the waters of this sort of stuff 
you know, for me, yeah. because the show has a lot of latitude, I can talk to some astrophysicist or I can do a whatever, right. right? Like I can exit out of the culture wars whenever I want and and I can temper that accelerator. Whereas for you, this this is a lot more, uh, a, a broader amount of the time that you spend working. Do you, is that difficult for you? Yeah, sometimes it. I feel like I'd rather do anything but... Um, I do feel a kind of obligation, though, because I care about this stuff. I care about liberal values. I care about the this retreat, this societal retreat, this regression. And I do want to at least to be able to say that I tried <laughs> to do something about it. Um, but I do uh, on my show, for instance, I will often invite people who aren't talking about these issues, talking about other things, because I, I do want to broaden those sort of things. Sometimes I will write an article or a piece about something that's got nothing to do with it. I've got um uh, a cha- I've written a chapter for a book that's coming out next month, which is about the poet Walter de la Mer, and, and so stuff like that. I can just do something else. And, and does that feel you know, relieving when you you get to yeah, step great. out? Yeah, it's yeah, great. Yeah. You know, I I just had a musical on him in, in Belfast, which was which was nothing to do with the culture war, and that's great. I've I've just I've got another musical in development at the moment, which is about uh, plastic surgery in World War Two. So <laughs> you know, it's it's quite good to be able to step out and do. I like getting away from it. I sort of depend on it. A lot of the stuff I read is not not to do with the culture war as well. Yeah. Well, I think one of the concerns that I would have, and it's thankful that, you know, my friends like you and Douglas and stuff that do uh, jump feet first into these discussions a lot of the time have other things as well. Yeah, uh, that you I would to. You see the total per- perverting nature of living and breathing this stuff. I actually think that James Lindsay is someone who probably suffered with that a good bit, that he just went so headfirst into this stuff and was kind of catapulted to to the forefront, the battlefront of a, a lot of these discussions that it, it just cons- it seemed to totally consume him. And I'm like, well, I, he, said, he has said, hasn't he, since he was booted off Twitter, he said that actually it feels like a big relief. I, I haven't like, seen that. Where did he put that out? It was in a video I saw. Uh, okay, just, yep. I just caught a glimpse of but it. That wouldn't he surprise said, me. That wouldn't surprise he said, me. He said that it feels like a reprieve or something. Like it feels like. So I, th- I get it. Like I think you know I like James a lot. I think he's a really great guy, and I think uh, getting away from Twitter may be a wonderful thing for him. You know, could be. I, a gift. I, I would love to get off Twitter. That's my goal, right? Eventually, retire. I'll be what, off to retire Twitter. from working. No, 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 no. I want to be able to retire from Twitter. Well, to be fair, the the book that I'm working on next is nothing to do with the culture war. So there we go. So there's, you know, I can do other things. Exciting. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to speaking to you about that as well. <laughs> Look, let's bring this one home, mate. Uh, if people want to keep up to date with all of the stuff that you do, where's best to go? Um, I think uh, either watch me on Free Speech Nation, which is my show on GB News, which is every Sunday at seven o'clock. Uh, or if they want to come to Twitter, I'm at Andrew Doyle underscore com. Uh, and if they want to read my new book, it's called The New Puritans. And that is kind of my last word on the culture war base. I mean, I've basically said everything I've got to say about it. I think, Draw a line underneath that. Within within that book. So I think that would be the way to, if, you, if you're interested in what I think about this stuff. And and obviously I'm very much aware that, you know, we're having a chat now and we're talking and, and we're only getting half the picture because there are things I'm not thinking of that I should think of. And there are, and perhaps I'm not expressing myself as well as I, as I might. But in the written word, in a book length thing, you're able to really concentrate and draw out and rewrite and clarity is, is all there so that's that's why i'd recommend that people buy the book andrew i appreciate you mate thank you thanks a lot
Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed, and that means you're going to miss out on future episodes. So if you want to support the show and make me very happy, go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and press the subscribe button. I thank you. Also, don't forget that you can receive 15% on all of Verso's products at ver.so slash modernwisdom. The code MW15 at checkout you can get an 83% discount, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee from Surfshark by going to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. And you can get 10% off your first month of counseling from BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.